Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him he was by the, when he was by the lake. The, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and, he, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my, do- my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd pre- followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She had spent all she had and Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realised the power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see, you see all the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. Why? And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear she told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your face has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering while Jesus was speaking some people came from the house of Jairus the synagogue leader your daughter is dead that they said why bother the teacher anymore Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, just believe. He, he, did, not, uh, he did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion of people crying and, crying and wailing loudly. He was in... He went in and said to them, why, why, why is all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep, but they all laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was sleeping. I mean, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kahum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At, At this they were completely astonished. They had, he gave her strict orders they gave, he gave them strict orders to not let anybody know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, Thanks Aurora. 
You had to read it with the original Aramaic in there and everything. Good evening again, Sunnybank District Baptist Church. Delighted to be with you as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to look at tonight's passage. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to know you better. We pray you open it to our hearts, and we pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say through your word. And we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark tonight. So far in the, in the narrative of this Gospel, in the story, Jesus has he's emerged, he's begun his ministry. Uh, the first words in the Gospel of Mark, probably the first Gospel written, are the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And since that time, he's uh, called his disciples. He's been moving around the countryside in Judea, performing these miracles, these high-profile miracles that draw attention to him and also sort of trying to control the growth of that fame, telling some people not to tell others about him. Uh, And so, uh, particularly with demons that he casts out, and they seem pretty vocal about who he is, and he tells them to be quiet, which is a a sort of a weird dichotomy of things to do. But Jesus is working on a God-given schedule. Uh, He knows exactly when he wants to be famous enough that people are trying to kill him, and it's not just yet. Basically, Jesus is doing two things. He's performing miracles to prove that he is God-sent, And with a little wisdom, people can figure out that he is God in flesh. And also, he is uh, teaching off the back of that authority that those miracles seem to show that he has, that he is Lord over things. And roughly what Jesus is looking for is specific reactions. When he proves that he is God, people are amazed, they're shocked, they're astonished, sometimes they're afraid, but they're supposed to recognize his spiritual authority in this. When Jesus does a miracle that's obviously God sent, they're supposed to recognize he has, obviously, spiritual authority to act. And ideally, when you're confronted by the truth that you are listening to the creator of the universe, the response should be faith. It should be belief, should be loyalty, should be devotion. The act of giving someone credit about who they are in a way way that impacts the way that you live. And that's what the faith is that Jesus is looking for. And that's a kind of a helpful template to hang on to as we move through Mark. Keep an eye out for people reacting to Jesus' divinity, how they react to him obviously being God, and also for them displaying faith or a lack thereof. And today's whole passage is actually uh, from chapter 435 to 543, and that passage contains four events, and we're going to look at three of them. The first of those events is very famous, is Jesus calming the storm. And we're going to look at that. The second event is Jesus casting out the demon or demons uh, that describe themselves as legion. And that's a pretty complex uh, exorcism narrative that Jesus gets into. And we're going to put that one off into a night where we can look at that one by itself for the whole sermon. But the last two events, the ones that Aurora just read for us, are weird because they're kind of nested in one another as a story. Usually that doesn't happen. Uh, Usually... You know, a writer learns from their English teacher that you start a new paragraph for a new idea. Mark didn't have an English teacher. He begins this story about Jesus and the synagogue leader Jairus, and Jairus comes to him, asks him to heal his daughter. Jesus says, sure, let's go and see her now. And then Mark stops that story to tell the in-between story about a woman who is suffering from this bleeding who gets close enough to Jesus just to touch his cloak, to kind of yoink a miracle out of his pocket as he's going by without him initiating it. And this seems to catch Jesus off guard. The son of God is caught off guard, enough that he stops the whole party until that he can talk to her directly and bless her. And then we're back on track. We go back to the, the Jairus' daughter uh, story. We go back to Jesus heading over there and 
he raises her to life, as we've read there. And that's kind of a weird formation for a miracle to be described uh, in the scriptures. It's like a miracle sandwich. It's one miracle wrapped in another miracle, uh, wrapped in a conundrum. And we'll talk about why that is that way, um, why it's phrased like that. But for now, let's look at the start of today's passage, Jesus calming the storm. All right, starting at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped and Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, if you've read the book of Jonah recently, and this is ringing some bells, yes, there's a resemblance here. Um, in the book of Jonah, God's prophet Jonah is asleep in a ship, uh, in the lower deck of the ship when the storm comes and the crew wake him up to try and figure out uh, what's going on and how to get his help as a prophet of God so that they don't end up drowning. And a similar scene seems to happen here. Jesus is snoozing comfortably, the text seems to uh, imply. It says specifically he's sleeping on a cushion. Okay. Um, I guess it's to draw an emphasis to the, the realities between how Jesus is so comfortable in this situation and how they're so panicked. You have these 12 guys on a little sailboat in the middle of a storm. They're tacking the sails and securing the boom and bailing out water as waves are throwing them around and lightning is flashing and there's big thunder cracks and James must call to Peter, Peter, the boat can't take much more of this. We need a miracle. And so Peter, heart pounding, runs across the deck nearly goes overboard in the, in the storm and stops at the stern of the ship and then peeks in and sees Jesus there peacefully asleep on a beanbag. And to be fair, it is kind of annoying sometimes when something you feel is important is like a non-event to someone else. Um, and so you can understand a little bit why the disciples wake him up. Why aren't you panicking? Don't you care that we're going to die? And in this terrible storm, in which his followers are worried that they're going to die, Jesus tells the storm to be quiet and still. And it goes quiet and is still. From verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's like someone dealing with their dog going nuts and barking at night. Just, oi, settle down. And then the storm just settles down. <laughs> just like that. And we have both in this, their reaction to Jesus' divinity. We see they are terrified. And Jesus comments about this fear, suggesting they have a lack of faith. The disciples did not expect, whatever they expected Jesus to do here, this apparently wasn't it. They woke him up looking for his help. And then they are terrified when they get the miracle they kind of asked for. So they must have expected something maybe a little different in character. Maybe they were thinking he would do something like Elijah or Moses, um, where they would speak to God, they would invoke his power, um, and then do some great natural miracle. Jesus clearly does it offhandedly by his own authority, probably still half asleep while he's doing it. And so the disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's like nothing they've seen before, nothing they've read before, far beyond the capacity of any prophet previously seen because the power isn't just directed by Jesus and delegated to him, it seems to come from him. The authority is located in him. So it's an incredible miracle. And a question worth asking is, when Jesus says, why are you afraid, have you still no faith? What precisely does he mean? 
Because he could mean two things here. And, uh, he could mean, why were you so afraid of the storm that you woke me up? Don't you have any faith in the divine mission that we are on that uh, God wouldn't let this ship capsize? Couldn't you have spoken to the storm yourself and done this miracle if you had faith? That's one reading. Or, and this is my impression, he could mean, why are you so afraid of me right now having seen this? Uh, haven't you already seen me cast out demons and heal people? Don't you know who I am? Uh, haven't you already declared that you are following me and are devoted to me? Didn't you know who I was? Have you grappled with this yet? Do you have no faith? And those are two fairly distinct readings that hinge upon what we mean when we use the word faith. And if you take faith to mean a kind of positive, risk-embracing hope that God will do one thing rather than another if you believe it strong enough, then you have to take the first reading that Jesus had to be talking about how the disciples should have been more faithful. They should have created more faith in themselves so they wouldn't have to be worried about this. But if you tend to see the word faith as meaning, as I do more about loyalty and devotion, like faithfulness in a relationship, and I think that's the right way to read it, then you have to see Jesus is kind of hurt by their reaction to him and his power. Like, why are you afraid of me? The demons are afraid of me, the Pharisees are afraid of me. You're supposed to be my disciples. But now I see you don't understand who I am enough to have faith. And how lonely it must have been for Jesus to go through these years of his ministry without his disciples, his friends, really being able to grasp who he was until right at the end. The pattern in Mark's gospel uh, specifically is Jesus revealing himself by miracles to be, uh, or by teaching to be Lord over things, aspects of the world and, and struggles that people have. Something over which God is really only Lord and therefore you could see Jesus and say he must be God. And so Jesus reveals himself to be Lord over the wind and the waves here and the disciples are paralyzed and confused by this. They seem unable to make the leap that they need to that this means that Jesus is not just a prophet but God himself in flesh. And then over on the other side of the lake Jesus will encounter legion but we'll come back to that another day. But starting at 521 we have this miracle sandwich, healing wrapped in a resurrection. So let's visit that now, starting at chapter 5, verse 21. So we'll go there again. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and will live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now right away, Jairus comes with an expression of faith, of his own faith. He knows something about who Jesus is and what he can do and knows enough to kneel before him and ask him to lay his hands on his daughter so that she will be healed and live. Nice for people to have faith in Jesus in this story here. And so they begin towards Jairus's house. And then we jump sideways into this story about another parallel miracle, this healing. And a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12, a woman that was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt her, um, in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, 
this could be the most fascinating miracle that Jesus does from a technical standpoint, because how does this even work? Um, you have a woman who has had this bleeding issue, she's been suffering for 12 years, and no doctors have been able to help her. Uh, not that doctors in the first century were doing much more than guessing anyway, but not only is she not getting better, the text says she's getting worse. If nothing changes, this is going to kill her. In an expression of faith, this woman decides, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This is sort of the opposite of how miracles normally occur around Jesus. Someone asks Jesus to do something, or Jesus just decides unilaterally he's going to do a healing or do something miraculous. But this is the only time that someone sort of swipes a miracle from him without him first offering it. Starting at verse 30. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, uh, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's kind of funny. Like, it's very touching. It's a very powerful heart one, but it's also kind of funny. This is the same Jesus who in other parts of the gospel instinctively knows what people are thinking about him, let alone what's going on individually around him. Um, he has, as a member of the Godhead, as God himself, he has access to God's omniscience. It means he can know anything. But it goes to show that for all the access to this divine power from his birthright, Jesus suspends his access to some of that power, some of that knowledge, most of the time, because he's actually living a human life. So that he can really be a man on earth, really living a life, and to really represent us before the throne of God. So he's able to both be God who knows all things, and also someone who you can sneak up on and sort of skim some healing power off if you're quick enough. And it's not like everyone who was touching him was getting like a burst of miraculous healing power, just this woman. And he calls her out of the crowd. And interestingly, she is afraid of him. She tells him the truth. Uh, but unlike the disciples, whose fear Jesus seemed to regard as a failure of their faith, in this case, he seems to see that fear as normal enough and doesn't comment on it. He doesn't say, oh, how dare you be afraid. Um, after all, Jesus is... If Jesus was to be angry at her underhandedness, he could make a pretty convincing case that she'd just stolen a miracle from the Son of God. But he is not angry, and she hasn't stolen from him. She's just thrown herself on the promises of God. She's acted out of faith. Now, she may simply be leaning on a general, uh, a general knowledge and a general sense and a general faith that God is good and that Jesus has healing, and if she can just get that close to him, then maybe God will reward her and respect that. There's a more complex possibility that this woman might be responding to a promise God makes in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which is, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, without a whole song and dance about this, the Hebrew word translated here as rays is kanaf. That means corners, it means wings, it means edges, it means extremities. It means the edge part of something, the further outmost part of something. You might have heard this verse translated otherwise, that there is healing in his wings. It's the more poetic way it's translated. The NIV uses rays. Um, but the heart of this promise is that even the, the flimsiest, the cornermost, the edgemost parts 
of the coming Messiah, there will be healing available for people to be set free. And so perhaps this woman says, if I touch the very edge of him, if I touch the corner of his robe, if I can get into that fringe perimeter, I know that his blessing is sufficient to heal me. And I'll cause the least fuss, I'll receive this, God, this uh, godly healing, and then I'll go. And whether her hope was that specific or just generally for God's mercy, she possessed faith. And God honors it. She was devoted to God and his Messiah, and so Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. And off she goes. It's a beautiful account. And it's the inner part of this sandwich. And then we snap back to the bread in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. The girl he was going to see to heal has died. Maybe this delay with the woman who has sort of interrupted him on his passage means that he's too late. Jairus' friends try cluelessly to help him by saying, she's gone, let's not make this any more painful, let's not trouble Jesus anymore, let's just go and mourn. Jesus cuts in, don't be afraid, just believe. This is another case in this passage where fear and faith are kind of featured together. Although in this case, it's not the fear of Jesus that's in play. It's uh, the Lord asking Jairus not to be afraid for his daughter, for her sake. So it's not a reaction to his divinity like in the other cases. And the word he believe literally means faith. It's literally the same word uh, in, the, in the, uh, the written language, in the Greek, when you see it. Whenever you see faith and believe and belief and have faith, it's always the same word, same concept. So Jairus is confronted with the worst news he could receive. And Jesus encourages him to do the one thing he can do in such a moment, to have faith. If Jesus hasn't given up, then he should trust in Jesus. And so he does, to verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And he put them all out. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. They laugh at him, kind of a bitter laughter. They don't think he's telling jokes. They think he's an idiot. Because he's marched into a house where people are grieving the loss of a girl without seeing the body to make a contrary assessment, even if he was a medical professional of some kind, he announces, she's not dead, she's asleep. So they laugh, the only thing they can do. Now why would Jesus say this? Because the girl is in fact dead. He can't mean that literally, because he would be somewhat disingenuous. The passage says that she died, and he raises her to life. He's speaking in metaphor, but he is speaking seriously. Everyone in that house knows that Jairus had gone to get Jesus. Everyone knows that if he's gone to get Jesus, they know something about the healing power Jesus is supposed to be commanding. And if they can have faith that God is able to heal the sick by the hand of Jesus, they should be able to have the faith that God can raise the dead by his hand in the same way. Healing and raising the dead are both things that prophets have done in the past in the Bible. They're things that they should expect that a prophet of God would be able to do if that's all they understood he was, even if that's all they believed. But the truth is that while Jairus and perhaps his wife have faith that Jesus has the ability to heal their daughter, the others at this house obviously don't. 
And when Jesus says that she's only sleeping, he's saying essentially, it's no harder for him to wake her up from death than it is to wake up a girl who is sleeping. And that's exactly what he does. He took her by the hand and said, uh, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, they were completely, well, at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So he gently takes her hand. He tells her to get up, and as you might tell someone who is asleep to get up, and she gets up from death. Apparently energetic because she starts walking around, apparently hungry because he tells them to feed the poor girl. This is a reaction to the miracle uh, of Jesus' obvious divinity here, and the reaction that we get is they are in complete astonishment. In the Greek there is uh, ecstasy. You may guess what that means, from to be beyond the normal state of human feeling from which we get the word ecstatic and ecstasy in English. They are over the moon. And if they didn't think that he could do miracles before, they certainly must now. Their response to seeing this, um, this guy is this son of righteousness with healing in his wings, their response is rapturous delight, and I think that's probably about the right thing to feel when you encounter Jesus. So the question that burns a hole in my brain over this is why are these stories in this miracle sandwich? Why, what does this aim to achieve? What's special about this pair of miracles that they are tied together? There's a couple of good notions, none of which are uh, spelled out directly for us in the text, but all of which are implied in the text, and I'd like to focus on that it's about, as much as anything, how Jesus regards the status of the people that he encounters and serves. Because first, Jesus does not give second-rate healings, even if it comes from the fringe of his robe. He doesn't give second-rate healings. Jairus, this synagogue leader, is a man of some prestige and respect. He comes before Jesus and beseeches him in the middle of a crowd to come and see his daughter. He's a synagogue leader. That's about as high uh, as you can get in a Jewish society when you're not a Pharisee or a priest or a king. He's a man who is pretty respectable. But this woman has been ritually unclean for 12 years. Interestingly, that's as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. There seems to be the fact that the girl is 12 years old and this woman has been bleeding for 12 years mentioned there just to tie them together in another way. But she's never participated in any of the temple events or festivals in 12 years. She hasn't been a part of the Jewish cultural life that connects to God in 12 years because she's been bleeding the whole time. That disqualifies you. And she's a woman which, as we know, in, particularly in ancient civilizations, and Hebrew Israel was uh, no exception, isn't exactly the short road to respect. And she's poor because she spent all of her money on doctors who not only failed to help her, but were helping her as her um, condition degraded. She's as pathetic a case as you could hope for as an individual study, so much so that she doesn't even consider herself worthy to speak to Jesus, and so she makes her way through this crowd as Jesus is going to do an important miracle for an important person. And she touches him and immediately feels the healing inside her and then intends to go away without a fuss. The Gospel of Luke rendition of this same miracle has her saying when she realized that she wasn't going to get away, when she realized she wasn't going to go unnoticed. But Jesus doesn't do cut-rate miracles for cut-rate people. He stops this train of people moving and refuses to go any further until this publicly shameful woman comes forward into his presence 
like Jairus did for a miracle. And when she does, he doesn't rebuke her for being sneaky. He doesn't tell her that she should have waited her turn because obviously he was busy. He says, daughter, identifying her publicly as the daughter of God that she is, as surely as anyone else would be. Your faith has healed you. And she's humble enough that she's prepared to accept the edge of the robe, just the fringe, but Jesus doesn't let her receive a lesser blessing. He gives her his full attention and direct attention like he would anyone else. And secondly, the reverse is true as well. As prestigious as Jairus may have been, uh, as many friends and, and consolation as he might have had and all those fellow mourners he had at his home, fundamentally he is just as much at the mercy of sickness and death and by extension sin as anyone else in the world. And only faith in God is used to anyone against such a terrible enemy. Status means nothing before the enemies of God and it buys nothing from God himself. All that counts there is humility and faith. And put together they remind us that no matter how good we might have it or how blessed we might be, we all come before God for forgiveness and blessing on our knees as if we had nothing. And all of us, no matter how destitute and hopeless we might be, who see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, and react by having that faith in him, by pledging ourselves to him, offering our loyalty and devotion to him, all of us receive a blessing of adoption and forgiveness and eternal life that no king or hero on earth could possibly ever earn or deserve. The God that we serve, who is Lord over the seas and over suffering and over death itself, calls all his children to come to him on their knees and then live forever with him in glory. So let's pray together. <coughs> Father God, we know that we don't deserve the nature of the forgiveness and the blessing you give us, that that's the very heart of grace. And we thank you that you offer it to us anyway. Look at those disciples who seem to be so uh, clueless and faithless as they begin their journey with you and know that we're just like that. We're no better than them. We're certainly no better than them. And what you did for them was make them pillars of faith that would build your church in the world. Lord, build that faith in us so that we can serve you faithfully as well. Help us not to be distracted by a sense of our station, whether high or low, but to come to you humbly and to accept the magnitude of your blessing, Lord. We thank you for that enormous, powerful grace that we could not earn ourselves and that you give it to us, no matter how unworthy we were. Thank you, Lord, for making us worthy. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Jesus is calling 